guys, welcome back. I'm hanging out with my chief squad still. Um, so in addition to covering articles and some things we do for no reason, one of the goals for this year was to identify some topics from the ever scary in training exam. And this isn't to put any specific person on blast. It's more to put the whole program on blast. <laughs> so, <laughs> no pressure. So we identified a couple of topics that basically as a program we could probably do a little better on. And so we're going to go through a couple of those. And the idea here is that it's like a five minute really quick boards review kind of podcast. So with that, let's get into it. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is one of Mike's favorite topics. Of course. So I always ask myself this question every morning when I wake up, to be or not to be. Mm. So let's talk about some latent TB. One of my <laughs> more preferred topics to talk about because TB on itself is a beast. Mm -hmm. So what is latent TB? Obviously, it's a latent infection that has a possibility of being reactivated. So the goal of kind of identifying those with latent TB is identify and treat those who are at increased risk of reactivation of tuberculosis. So you don't go out this testing anybody and anybody for latent TB. It's usually you're actually supposed to do it kind of more in your selective populations. As you can tell or already know, your high-risk populations mm -hmm. are those with HIV. Everybody with HIV needs to get at least screened for latent TB. HIV alone is like a 20-fold mm -hmm. uh, increase in risk of reactivation. Correct. So that is, and it's worldwide, TB is like one of the biggest causes of death in Correct. our population. So Correct. Big, big risk. And you have, if you have AIDS associated HIV, your risk is about 100 to 120 fold. So it's even, wow. even higher. So then you're obviously your chemo patients, your lymphoma patients, those with uh, transplants, anybody on immunosuppressives need to be screened. Your moderate risk patients are those with long-standing diabetes, those on long-standing glucocorticoid. They have about a five to six times fold risk of latent TB. And then the slight risk, which was underweight, probably because of the uh, <laughs> consumption process, sure. uh, which Dr. Gumman actually has a patient coming with consumption. And then your smokers. So now let's go into kind of the testing that we do for latent TB. This is completely different from your active TB. You're, you're going to be using your interferon gamma release assay and then your tuberculin skin testing as well. Right now, the recommendations are most patients, if not all patients, should be undergoing interferon gamma. Mm -hmm. Your limitations to that is it's not always accessible to most locations. If it's not, not accessible, then you do the PPD, which requires a 48 or a 72-hour evaluation afterwards. So that can also be a compliance problem. So, and it's also important to mention that your interferon gamma is really best to be used on those with the, the beta HCG uh, vaccine because if they got the vaccine, it can have, cause a false positive with the PPD. Right. The live vaccine, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay, so now that we know our two testing, let's just talk a little bit about the inferior gamma and how it actually works so we can understand it. So basically, it measures the T cell response of the release of interferon gamma in response to simulation with a highly tuberculosis antigen. So it makes sense. If you have been colonized with tuberculosis and you get this, you have this delayed hypersensitivity reaction, boom you got the interferon gamma release. So that's what it's ultimately testing for. And the BPD, PPD is a little bit different. It's more based off of skin induration. Yeah, and, and the uh, interferon gamma release, or the quantiferon is the brand name. Correct. It will also check your immune system function. So if someone has AIDS, they might not mount an immune response, and the test will be indeterminate. So it's basically checking, like, do you respond to some kind of antigen, and do you respond to the specific TB antigen. So it's actually a very clever test. And it's called a quantiferon, or a quantiferin if you're fancy, <laughs> because there's four tubes that they're checking. Correct. There's an empty tube, a antigen tube, and two TB tubes. So you can read a little bit about 
you know, what to expect in terms of how to interpret this test, but that's the basic idea behind it. So just consider if it's negative and you're really suspicious, it might be because your patient has literally no immune system. Exactly. So now kind of bouncing back to the PPD testing, you know, a lot of this, we're not going to be really doing too much in practice. It's more like we're going to get this on the boards. I'm just going to break it up really quick about kind of the size differentiation. So greater than 15, it's positive for all others with no risk factors for TB. Greater than 10, you look at, you think about your IV drug users, those with high prevalent countries like India, uh, those in residents of high risk congregate homes like nursing homes, jails, prisons. Um, if you work in a mycobacterial lab, that could possibly do it as well. And then it's positive if more than five in those that are HIV positive, a recent contact with somebody with known infection, fibrotic changes on chest x-ray, yada, yada, yada. There's plenty of other little things. Um, so this knowing the cutoffs is 5, 10, 15, and try to just remember one or two from each population, then you'll be able to get most things on the test. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of hard to remember. So I just think of 15, everyone's positive. Yeah. Because that's just humongous. Mm -hmm. And five is reserved for like the super high risk patients. And one thing that's important to note, maybe not so much on a test, but in practice, is that it's not the area of erythema. It's not like how red is your skin. Exactly. It is the area of induration. Like you have to mount like a nice, gotta have like a like a cartoon. Yeah. Remember when they used to get hit in the head and they get that big lump? Like that's <laughs> yeah. how I imagine it. Like, like it's gotta be like a raised lump. That is feel, what, yeah. yes, that yeah. is what you're feeling. Yeah, like Humpty Dumpty can roll down it. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So now that we have a positive interferon gamma with a rule out active TB. Make sure that, you know, this patient isn't actually having active TB, so that's where you go for your chest x-ray, look for any radiological signs. Yes, you could do a good history, good physical, do a sputum culture for AFB. Um, but you have to differentiate between the two because it changes your management. So let's talk about management really quick. Uh, it's really three or four regimens you can really do. So first one's isoniazid daily for nine months or twice weekly for six months. Isoniazid and rifapentine weekly for three months Rifampin daily for four months, or isoniazid and rifampin for three months. So, and it's also important to note that you also need to supplement vitamin B6 whenever you're given isoniazid, then that's to pre help prevent the development of peripheral neuropathy, and I'd like to test that too. Yeah, that's a favorite one Yeah, question. that's a favorite. So, I, I think the other favorite question that they might ask you is liver failure with isoniazid, so correct. something else to watch for. Correct. So that's really it when it comes to latent TB, just knowing the type of testings to do and how they differ from active, knowing your cutoffs for your, your skin testing, and what what's the recommended treatment regimen for, for latent compared to active. Excellent. So you are all latent TB experts in three minutes. Mm -hmm. Now we can sit back. And I, I will say also, not for boards, but personal pet peeve. When your patient comes to the emergency department and you get called for the consult and they have like hemoptysis and night sweats and they're like fevering and weight loss, that is not the time to do the PPD Correct. or the quant. That is, you <laughs> are like later. highly suspicious or they're like draining pus from their neck. Like at that point, like, a, you know, a, a quant or a PPD is inappropriate. It won't tell you active or it won't tell you anything. You need some sputum or you need a lymph node. You need some like actual tissue with some AFB on it. So just remember, this is all, as Mike said, like for high risk patients, for patients who are starting on TNF alphas or immunosuppressants, that's when we're screening or exposures, not for like a rule out of active. So just keep that in mind. I think one more thing too, when it comes to acid fast cultures, that can take up to four weeks to grow anything, right. but you can still have an AFB positive that's based off the stain right. initially, but the culture takes some time. Yes, yeah. And in terms of the sputum cultures, you need multiple too. Correct. So it's a, it's a long process. It's a process. 
So shifting gears a little bit, another topic that we identified that as a program we could do a little better on is, uh, and you know, if you look, read like the ACP breakdown, some of the questions, some of the like uh, recommended topics to read are so specific and bizarre. Uh, so the specific area was elevated INRs in a non-bleeding patient. So I kind of thought really quickly we can review what to do about elevations in INR and how to manage that. So. Um, you know, again, back when I was a resident all those years ago, I felt like I saw a lot of patients on warfarin, but you know, as time goes on, DOACs are a lot more popular. They've been shown to be safe. We're transitioning a lot more. So you'll typically see warfarin still for your, you know, maybe a renal patient, a mechanical valve patient, or a patient who unfortunately can't afford a yep. DOAC because they are quite pricey. And those antiphospholipid patients too. True. There are still some patients who, you know, arterial thrombosis, you still go with the warfarin, you know. Um, the benefit of warfarin, of course, is it's very cheap, um, you know, uh, easy to administer. The problem is that there's a lot of fluctuations in INR levels. I think I've mentioned this to you guys before, but if you are like religious about taking your warfarin pill and you are on like a no salad diet, Best case scenario, your INR is therapeutic like 60% of the time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of fluctuations, yeah. like maybe your patient missed a dose, maybe they ate a little extra kale that day, uh, maybe they took an antibiotic that messed with cytochrome yada yada, and here <laughs> we are. Jobs work. Exactly. There's a million <laughs> things, right? Um, so in general, you should recognize that a patient can bleed at any level of INR, whether it's 2 or 10. So it's not like uh, the... INR is 10, they are going to definitely have a life-threatening bleed, and INR is 3, like they're probably fine, like they can bleed when they want to bleed, especially if they're older, they've got a history of bleed, they have, um, you know, they're taking NSAIDs, etc. So just consider that. And I think it's important too to also figure out like why the INR is so if why it's elevated. So if it's elevated because they're on warfarin, that's very separate than if it's elevated because they have liver failure mm. because those patients are no matter the level are still hypercoagulable so true they lose their protein c and s as well so uh let's just go by level so basically um if you're bleeding reverse it <laughs> like that it's just yep. that easy if the patient's bleeding whether it's five or ten you just reverse it and the preferred reversal agent is a, a pcc or a four-factor complex it has less volume than ffp and the one of the apps is frozen so you know you got to microwave it i think mm -hmm. and pre prepare it okay. and give it so a little delay in, in administering ffp as compared to pcc yeah pcc actually works within minutes and it's recommended that you recheck your inr 15 minutes after you finish the infusion and you can order additional products based on what that inr comes back as as well and i think it's also important to note that you should be giving iv vitamin k here uh, because the half-life of warfarin is very long, so you need the body to start remaking those factors. Exactly. But the other uh, uh, case is a non-bleeding patient. So if you are not bleeding, if your INR is on the lower side, like 3 to 5, you're just going to hold a dose and recheck it. If your INR is above 5, maybe you hold two doses and you recheck, you just kind of monitor. If you're above 10, you can give some vitamin K with it. Um, and uh, kind of monitor the levels and, and check. So I think where we might get tripped up on a test question and also in real life is when you see an INR of like eight or nine, you might be tempted to give the PCC or FFP or something, mm -hmm. but the correct answer is basically just monitor. Yep. And above 10, give vitamin K. 
And if they're bleeding at any level, absolutely reverse. So that's And if the it's kinda... above 10, we're giving IV vitamin K because there's also oral vitamin K. Um, but I think, it, you know, both of them take a while to actually work. Exactly. Um, the last thing that I just wanted to bring up on the topic of warfarin is in that initial day or two when you're starting warfarin, protein CNS get lost first, so you become hypercoagulable. So if you have a patient with a very high risk AFib, like a CHADS of 5, or if you had a clot like a week ago, those patients need to be bridged with like heparin or Lovenox. And then you start the warfarin, so this is like when you're resuming stuff. And then if it's like a history, a remote history of VTE or like a lower risk AFib, you can kind of just start the warfarin and just kind of check slowly over time. So that's all I got to say on warfarin, INRs and, you know, you will definitely see this. Yeah. And it's definitely scary when you see a number like that, but just consider like, what is your patient actually doing in front of you too? And so, then just throwing in, this is more of a clinical thing. We often get patients with an INR that's somewhere kind of elevated, not at the point where we need to be urgently treating them, so not at 10, but they need to go for a procedure or something. So mm -hmm. they're asking, how are we gonna you know, lower this INR? So FFP is more the answer there. Don't order your PCC in that situation. And I learned FFP has an INR of 1.6. So you're not going to drop it lower than that by giving FFP because I've seen it ordered for, before for an INR of like 1.5. Yeah, and I, you're I, not going to make progress that I way. I definitely had providers like, I'm, I'm waiting for the INR to be less than 1.4. I'm like, these are my demands kind yep. of. Yeah, and so. yes, they'll give you a number and not touch them until then. So. Yep, and you kind of just ride with it. All right, guys, thanks for uh, tuning in.